0: Luke chapter 22, verses 3 to 5. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them, and they were glad and agreed to give him money. Luke chapter 22, verses 47 to 55. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and a man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, Would you betray the son of man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? One of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them.
1: Hey, everybody, good morning and welcome to Christ Community Chapel. So glad that you're here. Uh, Welcome, those of you who are tuning in. All right, we are in this 10 week series where we are looking at the 10 final scenes of Jesus' life according to the Gospel of Luke. And we are calling this series Come and See. And I love that title, Come and See. Because I've always felt like if I could get someone just to come and see Jesus, to look at him, not look at the church, not look at Christians, but look at Jesus, that their hearts would be melted. I am still stuck on uh, the quote from Blaise Pascal that I mentioned last week. Blaise Pascal is that famous 17th century French mathematician and philosopher who said, tell the gospel in such a way that good men wish it to be true, then show it to be true. And who wouldn't want the gospel to be true? Who wouldn't want it to be true that there's a God in heaven who knows you, really knows you, knows everything about you and still loves you? A God who is just but also merciful, who has provided a way for you to be forgiven, to experience love and joy and forgiveness and hope right now and forever. Who wouldn't want that to be true? And in these next 10 weeks, our intent is to show it to be true. And we have the baptistry out uh, each week because it is our prayer that many of you would be so convinced that it is true, that you will be ready to go all in with Jesus by the end of this series on April 25th. We have already 20 people who have signed up and said, I'm ready to go all in. We are praying for many, many more. All right? So this is the third scene. Uh, The first scene, uh, we talked about Jesus in the upper room with his disciples and the Last Supper. Last week was scene number two, the Garden of Gethsemane. and And this is the third scene, which is Jesus' betrayal and arrest. And in this scene, we have Jesus, we have Judas Iscariot, we have a mob, and we have Peter the disciple. And here are my three points. I want to talk about the mistake of Judas, the mistake of Peter, and the secret of Jesus. The mistake of Judas, the mistake of Peter, and the secret of Jesus. First, the mistake of Judas. Judas Iscariot is the worst. <laughs> Can we just agree on that? Dante, in his book Inferno, puts Judas in the very deepest part of hell. Judas comes and he betrays Jesus with a kiss. Oh, little tidbit. Uh, The term kiss of death comes from this. Judas is the one who initiated this whole idea of the kiss of death. Judas betrays Jesus, and that seems like it would make him the worst of all sinners. But Luke is a Luke goes through extensive pains to let us know that Jesus was not surprised by anything. That Jesus knew someone was going to betray him. That Jesus knew all that was going to happen. Pastor Zach brought that out in the very first sermon of this series. That in the upper room, Jesus tells his disciples, One of you will betray me. All of you will abandon me. And then he takes bread and he says, This is my body that's going to be broken. This is my blood that's going to be spilled. But in that upper room, there's that interesting moment when he says, one of you will betray me. And then something happens I did not, I would not have expected. When he says that, and this was a very competitive bunch, the disciples. I mean, they, uh, they were going to have an argument right after uh, this last supper, uh, where they would argue about who was the best disciple. So they were always looking at each other and thinking, I'm better than you, and I'm better than you. And all that. But when Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, every disciple looked at Jesus like a deer caught in headlights and said to Jesus, is it me? Am I the one? And that's so strange to me. I mean, if I came to your circle group and I said to your circle group, listen, next week, one of you is going to go to the newspaper and try to get me fired. How would you respond? I think you'd go, what? No! Who would do that? At least that's the way I think you'd respond to my, you know, my imagination. But if you looked at me, and every person in your circle group looked at me and was going, uh, you talking about me? Am I the one? I would leave your circle group feeling pretty insecure. So this is my point. There are some sins I have, I, I have no problem identifying with that I can see myself doing. There are other sins uh, that I just feel like I do not identify with that. I could never, I would never do that. And you probably feel the same way. And I have always felt like I would never be Judas. I would never betray Jesus. I would never be the worst of the worst. But if every disciple thought that it was a possibility that they could be the one, maybe it's worth another look. So Judas meets with this group of people who hate Jesus, who who want to destroy Jesus. And he decides to betray him. He says, okay, listen, I'm in. And uh, I want you to know I will help you in any way. I will take you to where he is at night. I will identify him and you can arrest him and do whatever you want. And then they give him uh, 30 pieces of silver. And that last part stuck with me. The 30 piece, you, you would think that um, Judas could have gone to them and just said, listen, I see their handwriting on the wall. I see that you guys are after Jesus and that you guys are going to, and I, I just want you to know I'm out. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not with him anymore. In fact, I will help you guys do whatever you want to do. Just leave me out of it. Leave me alone. And that would have been enough. But they pay him 30 pieces of silver. So the thing that struck me is that Judas sold Jesus. You know, maybe the term... Selling someone out comes from this, too. Jesus sold Jesus, or Judas sold Jesus, and the question is, why? Why do you sell anything? Well, if you buy a stock, um, you hold on to that stock as long as it benefits you, as long as it's making money for you. But if that stock begins to plummet, begins to cost you, then you may be tempted to dump that stock, to sell that stock. It's easier to sell Jesus than you might think. Particularly if you see Jesus as someone who benefits you. Someone who helps you in your life. Someone who you can pray to and will answer your prayers, will encourage you, will love you, will forgive you, will, do, will fill your life with blessings. And as long as you look at Jesus like that and things are going well in your life, you have no problem associating with Jesus, identifying with him, and even feeling like you love him. But when things begin to go the other way in your life, when things aren't so good, when someone that you love gets sick or dies, and this is what I see all the time is when things go wrong, then people look at Jesus and say, What's the use? What's the use of serving him if this is the way my life is going to be? In fact, you know, 30 years ago when my little brother died, and I've told you this over and over again. That that's the way I felt. I was thinking, well, what's the use of being a minister if this is the way Jesus is going to treat me? It's easy to end up selling Jesus. In fact, the, the book of Job is all about that. You know, the the opposite of being a Jesus, of selling Jesus, is serving Jesus. Because when you serve Jesus, you're saying, Jesus doesn't exist for me, I exist for him. And I'm not going to serve him because of what he does for me now. I'm serving him because of what he has already done for me. But in the book of Job, you know, Satan, the way it starts, Satan comes into the throne room of God. And God says to, to Satan, have you seen my servant Job? And Satan says, oh, Job's not your servant. Listen, you begin to take away some of the benefits from him, and he will sell you. Job is not a servant. He's a seller. So this is what I want to tell you. There are some of you here today, probably, or watching online, and I watch it all the time when when things are not going well for you, that you begin to think, what's the use of being connected with Jesus? What's the use of serving or going to church or anything like that? And we're going to take communion in a little bit at the end of the message. And some of you need to take that time to confess this to Jesus and say, Jesus, I want you to know, I have been tempted to sell you because sometimes I feel like it's not worth it. Now, how do we move from being a seller to being a servant. Well, you look at Jesus, right? You look at what he's doing right here, going to the cross. Jesus is not a seller when it comes to you. Jesus doesn't look at you like you are a stock that goes up and down, that you are worthy or unworthy. The stock price for the, for the disciples right here is suffering right around zero. And still, Jesus goes to the cross. Listen, If you want to know how you become a servant and not a seller of Jesus, you have to quit looking at him as somebody who benefits your life now. Instead, look at the cross and see what he has done for you. When you were at your very worst, Jesus loved you the very most. That's the mistake of Judas. It's easier to make than most people realize. But Judas isn't the only one who makes a mistake here. Peter also makes a mistake. So this mob comes uh, to arrest Jesus, and they come with swords and clubs, and they come with swords and clubs because they expect Jesus to resist. They expect uh, a fight, right? And at least one disciple obliges, and we know from the Gospel of John that it's Peter. Peter draws a small sword, probably about 18 inches long from the way it's written in the Greek, and he begins to slash away. And I've already told you that, you know, I I would never want to identify with Judas. But in this story, I kind of like Peter. I I like to think that I might respond like Peter did. Where when Jesus is threatened, that I would pull out a little sword against the whole mob and say, bring it on. I'll, I'll take all of you on. Jesus, get behind me. You know. So Peter does that. And it seems like it's a really good thing to do, but... Jesus rebukes Peter, and it's a very short rebuke in the Gospel of Luke. it's longer in the other Gospels. Of course, you have to ask, why was Jesus rebuking Peter? And it's because Peter was making a couple of mistakes. Actually, he was making one mistake that manifested itself in at least two different ways. Uh, G- or Peter was uh, misunderstanding the gospel. He wasn't getting the gospel. He didn't yet understand who Jesus was and what Jesus had come to do. I told you last week that there is this paradigm that runs throughout the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It's the paradigm of a substitute sacrifice. Uh, And this is what the gospel is all about, that there is someone that substitutes for you right? That's the gospel, that there is a cup of wrath, and either you are going to drink it, or Jesus drinks it for you. That was last week. Either you are the one that's going to pay, or Jesus is the one that's going to pay. Either you die, or Jesus dies. That's what it means to have a Savior, right? And here, the thing that Peter does when there is a threat is Peter draws his sword, and he decides, if anybody's going to save me, it's going to be me. And that's where he moves away from the gospel. He is standing right next to Jesus. or I should say Jesus is standing right next to him. And Peter feels like, listen, I need to take charge. I need to be in control. If anybody's going to save me, I'm going to save. And that's also a mistake that is so easy to make. It's, it's one that I make all the time. You know, that Peter did that because he was threatened, because he was scared, because he felt like this mob was going to do something to him and to the people that he cared about. There's so many times when I feel threatened, when I feel scared, when I feel attacked, that I want to pull out a sword and I'll, and I'll say, I will save me. I will take control of the situation. I will do what I need to do. And I'm, Jesus is right there. And maybe you do the same thing. Well, there are times in your life, and then maybe right now, where you're thinking, listen, things are so out of control. I need to take control now. And if anybody's going to be able to do something, it's going to be me. But you need to know that Jesus stands right there. Jesus is not panicking. Peter is. The second mistake that Peter makes with not understanding the gospel is he thinks he's one of the good guys. Let me explain that. So you have this mob that's attacking Jesus. Peter pulls out the sword and he begins to slash away. He thinks he can actually kill them because he's a good guy and they're a bad guy. But if you understand the gospel, you can never think that. Because the the gospel is this, that we have a Savior. And if we have a Savior, it means that we need to be saved. Think of everybody drowning, everyone drowning. Listen, if everyone is drowning, everyone needs a Savior. No one needs a Savior more, and no one needs a Savior less. Listen, when you understand the gospel, you will never again think of yourself as a good guy and other people As the enemy, and one that you have the right to slash away at. In in 1 Peter, Paul the Apostle says something that's a little confusing. This is what he says in verse 15. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. (laughs) Paul the Apostle says that he's the worst sinner. This is in first century Rome. Caligula. Nero. What Was Paul really saying that he has done more horrific things than Nero? More horrific things than Caligula? More horrific things than anyone? What Paul is saying is this. I know the darkness in my own soul better than I know the darkness in anyone's soul. And as far as I'm concerned, that makes me the worst sinner of all. This is the thing that happens, is when we, uh, when we see ourselves the way God really sees, when we really understand the gospel, and we realize that we are sinners, then we would be very, we would not pick up the sword. We would not post on social media about other people's sins and say, look how terrible they are. We wouldn't talk about people behind their back. We wouldn't send emails around saying, look at this. This is so bad. I am one of the good guys, so I get to do this to anybody I want to do this to. And sometimes Christians are the very worst at this. And Peter decided to pick up his sword and not only try to save himself, but he was also saying, I'm one of the good guys and these people are the problem. And Jesus said, put your sword away. And so what I want to tell you is if you are a follower of Jesus, put your sword away. Everybody in the world right now seems like they have their swords out and they are going battle, going to battle with the people on the other side. And out of all the people in the world, Christians should be the ones that have dropped our swords because we realize that if the gospel is true, and there is no one who's a who's a worse sinner than we are, so that's the mistake of Judas, and that's the mistake of Peter. Now we get to the secret of Jesus, the secret of Jesus. So this uh, this crowd shows up, and they have swords and clubs. And Jesus asks a question, and his question is, "Why have you come with swords and clubs?" Why have you come right now? When, I've, when I taught every day out in the, in the daylight, why didn't you come and arrest me then? Right? Jesus knows the answer to that. They know the answer to that. They know because they are cowards. They have come at night because they wanted the cover of darkness. Jesus is always asking questions. And he's asking questions to give people an opportunity to see themselves as they really are. It started way back in Genesis. When God says, where are you, Adam? It wasn't that God had lost Adam. He was giving Adam a chance to say, this is where I am. I'm hiding. This is what I've done. I've sinned. Right? That's your only shot is when Jesus asks you a question and you answer honestly. You know, when we take communion, what I'm going to tell you is that you to allow Jesus to ask you some questions. Let Jesus ask you, why are you so worried? Why are you so anxious? Why are you so angry? Why are you so stingy when it comes to giving to me? Why are you not serving me? Let him ask you questions. Because it's our only chance of allowing Jesus to actually change us, to actually transform us. I always remember this quote I read a long time ago that said, most people only pretend to be sinners so they can only pretend to be forgiven. Let's not pretend. But Jesus, he says to them, listen, you have come because this is your hour. This is the hour of darkness. And Jesus is standing fearless. When he says this is the time of darkness, all the disciples scatter and Jesus is left alone. But he is fearless, which is so interesting because last week we talked about the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is a wreck. He's sweating drops of blood. He's pleading with God. Now, just a few minutes later, he is standing walking alone into darkness. And he seems absolutely fearless. I always thought that the, the battle was fought and won at the Garden of Gethsemane because of this. But how is it that Jesus is fearless walking into darkness? You know how? Because Jesus knows that his story doesn't end in darkness. You read the Gospels. Every time Jesus tells his disciples, this is what's going to happen to me. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. He always says, but then the third day, I'm going to rise again. The third day, I'm going to rise again. Jesus knew that his story wasn't going to end in darkness. The disciples scattered because they think this is the end of the story. They don't know that their story is going to end well. This happens, by the way probably in the the late, late hours of Thursday night or the early morning hours of Friday. By Friday at nine o'clock in the morning, Jesus is hanging on the cross and the disciples are absolutely devastated. But on Sunday at dawn, Jesus resurrects and kicks off the greatest day the disciples ever experienced and the greatest day the world has ever known. What's it like to know the end of the story? We'd like to know that your story does not end in darkness. I'm a, I'm a basketball fan, and I'm a Cleveland fan. And I don't know if you remember this, but in 2016, the Cleveland Cavaliers beat the Golden State Warriors for the NBA championship. <laughs> somebody applaud. Um, so what happened uh, was that uh, the Cavs went down three, three games to one. No NBA team in the history of the NBA had ever come back in a finals from a 3-1 deficit. This, uh, this is a DVD of the series. I watch it once a year. When the Cavs lose game four, when I'm watching this, I am not sad. I am not devastated. I'm not afraid. I'm not angry. In fact, I'm a little bit excited because I know they're going to they're win game five and then I know they're going to win game six and then glory, they win game seven. It's the greatest thing ever. What does it mean to know the end of the story? What means that Your story doesn't end in darkness, right? If you are a follower of Jesus, this is what it means. It means that your story is wrapped up in Jesus' story, which means that your story ends well. You should not be anxious. If you are in an hour of darkness, and some of you are right now, you don't have to be anxious. You don't have to be worried. You don't have to be sad. You don't have to be angry because this is the truth. For a follower of Jesus, there is no darkness where the dawn does not come. For a follower of Jesus, light always comes, and it comes because of Jesus. Do not make the mistake of Judas. Do not make the mistake of Peter. But please, Please understand the secret of Jesus because that's what Jesus came to give you and to let you know that there is no darkness for you, that light does not come, that the dawn does not come, and your story ends well because of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you, and I am so, so grateful. Uh, I am grateful that you uh, record all this. I'm grateful that you show uh, us how easy it is uh, to be Judas when out of uh, all the stories, that's the one I least want to be. I do not want to be someone who says, as long as you benefit me, then I will hang on to you. But when it starts to get hard to follow you, then I will turn away from you. I don't want to make the mistake of Peter and not really understand the gospel and not remember that I, that, I, that I am not one who can save myself, but you save me. And that I'm not one of the good guys, but I'm one of the loved guys because you have loved me. And I pray for every person here that all of us would remember your secret especially those who are in darkness right now or a dark time, that you would encourage them and remind them that light comes, that the dawn breaks because of your resurrection. Thank you. You are a wonderful Savior. We pray this in your name. Amen.